Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andrew Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. Today, we're talking to Melissa Hogan, president of Project Alive and this year's 2018 Rare Champion of Hope honoree. I am so excited that we're actually sitting here together face-to-face on location at Global Genes. I especially wanted to talk with you, Melissa, today because you, first of all, you're one of my advocate idols. And also because you are the winner of this year's Championship of Hope, and that's a big deal. So why don't you talk to me a little bit about how you got here? Right, sure. So this is actually my sixth uh, Global Genes Patient Advocacy Summit. The first summit I was... Out of seven. Six out of seven, right? And the first one I was actually watching the live stream and engaging on Twitter. That counts. Yeah. (laughs) So it's just really momentous to be coming here this long and then, you know, this year to be uh, an honoree. So it's, it's been a long journey. My son was diagnosed nine years ago. And to look back then and where we are now is is just kind of mind blowing in terms of research and clinical trials and 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 advocacy and data. It's a it's it's a different world now than it was nine years ago. And tell us about your son. So my son Case is now eleven years old. He was diagnosed at two with mucopolysaccharidosis two or Hunter syndrome, and we actually have a really unique diagnosis story and and this is the power of awareness in that you know he was when he was young he had a couple you know symptoms that you could associate with that but they were very common in in typical kids as well lots of ear infections and loud breathing and and no one really picked up on what was going on but my mom actually had a favorite tv show called mystery diagnosis she would watch the show because she's an rn But she sat down one Saturday to watch it, and it was about a boy with a lot of similar symptoms to my son. But like I said, none of his symptoms at the time were anything that anyone would associate with a serious disease. But she's watching this show and starts thinking, oh, my gosh, I think that my grandson may have this rare disease. And by the end of the show, she finds out it's Hunter syndrome, and it's serious, and it's terminal, and devastating, and of course she's a mess. Yeah, that's uh, that's very scary. Yeah, so she had to look it up, and 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 then she was around us more in the coming months, and was watching him specifically for some of these things. And she ended up telling me about it. Of course, I wrote it down, put it in my pocket, and was not thinking because she referred to it as an enzyme deficiency, which of course makes it sound like a nutritional uh, thing that it's not a big deal. Right. We talk about that sometimes when we talk about like disease versus condition, right? right? It's just all about how you kind of 
phrase it. Plus, you, she was emotionally engaged because she'd watched the show and you right. hadn't. And you weren't concerned that there was something wrong with no. Ace yet, right? Uh, I mean, he. I thought maybe he had food allergies. I mean, if you can, you know, yeah. food allergies to terminal disease. And food allergies, enzyme deficiency. I could mm-hmm. see where you just put it in your pocket. Right. So okay. I Googled it when I got home. And, you know, back then I didn't have an iPhone in my pocket. <laughs> good. It was a good thing. Yeah, it was, a good it was thing. actually. Uh, so I Googled it. My kids were at at school or daycare and, and, um, you know, it's like you go down through the pit of despair. You, you cycle down and reading all of this about this disease. You were seeing that the symptoms kind of matched case as well. Yes. And, and I ended up documenting 17 symptoms that day. And I knew when I saw the pictures of the boys, because Hunter syndrome has a look, uh, you know, similar to how Down syndrome has a yes, look. And, yes. And it's be- it's a beautiful look. I, I love it. Right. But I saw these boys and you see them and go, they could be the brothers of my son. And yep. and that's a powerful thing, I think, that, that I really worked on after that time was getting out uh, collections of pictures so people could start to see yes. the similarities. I genuinely have goosebumps because, you know, in lipodystrophy, it's right. when you see pictures, you're like, that could be my sister. That's right. crazy. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's a lot of technology happening now in the way of recognizing, um, you know, what they call dysmorphic facial features yes. and, and different uh, apps and things that they're working on. But at the time, you just had the Internet or just, you know, we're so lucky now. <laughs> right, right. But I recognized it. And, you know, we went to his pediatrician and, and that, you know, you go down the rabbit hole and life fully changes. Fully so, changes. Yeah. But you were and still are quite a professional. Um, you had a, a thriving career at that time, right? Did, did that change course for you a little bit? It did. It did. I was a practicing healthcare lawyer early in my career. My clients were hospitals and, and uh, surgery centers and, and, you know, companies doing corporate healthcare deals. And then after that, actually, when my son was diagnosed, I actually had a strategy consulting practice. So I was still doing a little bit of legal work and then consulting work. And, you know, when you get hit with that diagnosis, time stops. And, you know, what do I keep working? Do I keep, you know, doing this over here? And I just ended up slowly transitioning to using those same skills and that skill set in the advocacy and rare disease world and not necessarily in the the corporate world. How did you jump into because you, you had all of these fantastic skills that I can see transferred. But how did you jump into advocacy? Well, you know, of course, it always, everything starts at home. It starts in what you see right in front of you. And for me, that was, what do I have to do for my son? So, you know, as soon as they're diagnosed, you're then hit with, I need to advocate for schooling right. and insurance and these um these healthcare needs that they have or equipment needs. And so I had to learn a lot. I mean, I'm lucky in that I love learning. I love it. I'm a perpetual student. That's how you got through law school. Right. (laughs) So, um, you know, God just orchestrated something where I would have to keep learning for the rest of my life. So I started advocating for him in the school system and, you know, with our insurance providers. And then other people would start asking me questions. So then I started helping other families. And, you know, it just kind of steamrolled from there as, 
as I learned more, I started blogging. My son got in a clinical trial, so I was blogging about that and, and talking to other families. And eventually that led to starting a nonprofit and, and funding research. But it, like I said, it all kind of happens gradually uh, over time. And that phased out all of my, you know, kind of former professional work in what I was doing. I love how you just... I mean, we could talk about so many things all day, but I love how you just kind of glossed over starting the nonprofit and fundraising, funding research, <laughs> like, hmm, no problem. When did, I mean, since we're at Global Genes, like, how did your experience coming here, um, live streaming the first one and, and then the second year coming, how did working with other advocates at a conference like this help you in your journey? Right. That's what I tell people when they're diagnosed, I said, I say one of the most helpful things you can do is come to the Global Genes Conference yep. because I kind of look at it in, in a twofold way. There's the learning that you need to level up in terms of understanding what you could do as an advocate, what you could do with a nonprofit, what you might be able to do with a company. And so that learning uh, increases every year and there's always something to be learned at every level, but then also the networking. So you need to know the right people in order to access additional information, but also to make those connections in order to make, you, you can't make all of this happen alone. Um, in every circumstance where where we um, or me as an individual or our organization Project Live have had, have had a challenge, I've known the right people to reach out to because for years and years now, I've been establishing these relationships yep, exactly. and you know who to trust, mm -hmm. you know who not to trust and you mm -hmm. know who has the right information. And that's been so important. Well, and we all have different disease states, but we go through this the very similar journeys, yes. right? So you learn, we learn from each other. Right. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of not recreating the wheel. Yeah. And that's where I align so much with the mission of Global Genes and the fact that there's so much we can learn from one another. And a lot of us are doing very similar things. Yes. Uh, and, and so I talk a lot with other advocates that are not in the same disease. And people say, oh, do they have a child with Hunter's syndrome? I'm like, no, actually, they have a child with Duchenne or they have a child with um, multiple sulfatase deficiency. Right. But we're doing the same thing. And you know what I find amazing now is my whole world of looking at children and adults and, and these, you know, very difficult diseases, but also the beauty of the diseases. I mean, it opens up an incredible world that we just didn't have access to prior yes. this event, right? It changes your whole outlook on life. And that's what I really say, too, is... Of course, I am working for better treatments for my son and better treatments for our entire community and, and eventually a cure. But in the meantime, I want us to have a beautiful life. And, oh. you know, I get to wake up every morning to my son who is truly a miracle. And, you know, when they when they tell you your child's going to lose all of his skills and then he's going to die in his teens, you appreciate life in a much different way. Yeah. And I call it, it's, it's beautifully heartbreaking. Oh, I love that. But if you just call it heartbreaking, what are we doing? Well, you take you know? it away. It's yeah. I don't like that. Mm -mm. I don't like that. I don't, people don't need to tell me they're sorry because right. yeah, I mean, I'm not sorry. I'm right. 
I'm not sorry. I wouldn't. I actually wouldn't take it away from me. I mean, my children do not have lipodystrophy. I just got very lucky in not passing it. But uh, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't change this. Now, if I if I were a parent, I probably would have a different answer for that. But I'm I'm really grateful for all of these incredible, real, passionate friendships that we have. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, in the beginning, uh, I explained to people that first year is very, very hard. And that's why I have such a passion for newly diagnosed families, because I remember, I mean, I remember sobbing every day yeah. for almost a year. And I remember asking God, give it to me. Why would you you know, give this to this two-year-old child? Um, give me cancer and take this away, you know? Um, but you slowly kind of pick yourself up and, and figure out what this beautifully heartbreaking life looks like. Well, and I think that's where you and I are really very similar in that it's so important. We were both many years in um, with great accomplishments and understanding of the disease states, but looking back to help people get through that path a little bit smoother, right? We can't make it less beautifully heartbreaking. We can't take away those tears that need to happen, right? but we can make it less scary sometimes, right? right. We can create a, a picture of something that is, is less tragic. Yes, yes. And that's where... You know, I look at the the work that I do and the work that I do with our nonprofit Project Alive. Yeah, so I want to talk about Project Alive. Project Alive is is about um, officially about five years old now, okay. and the reason we started Project Alive was because we saw the exciting science happening for rare diseases, and we had an outstanding clinical trial in in Hunter syndrome, but we saw other science sitting on the table and said, this needs to move forward. And we really feel like as patients and as, as advocates, caregivers, we know the disease yep. better than anybody. And we did not want to see companies who thought they might know the disease designing trials and um, not including us. And maybe those trials wouldn't be successful. And that's actually one of the challenges we have now. So, you know, unfortunately, we were right about that. Um, and, and that's that's a hard place to be. But but now we're funding gene therapy and we have an open IND for gene therapy trial. And we're in the last phases of fundraising and getting that open. So that's really exciting. That is so exciting. So you and I both know, because we're pretty engaged, what's going on with FDA changes. But what do you think... Where do you think we are with having patients and, and, and patient foundations and advocates and really, truly engaged and involved in the process of drug development? I think that we are on the right track. I think that the leadership at FDA and, and down into a number of the divisions understand the value of patient input. You know, we used to be perceived as uh, especially especially caregivers, but even patients themselves, as the people with the rose-colored um, thick glasses. We couldn't see things clearly. Right. And we couldn't speak about the disease in a way that was objective or speak about treatments in a way that it was objective. And and I think that that perception has changed a lot in the last 10 years. I agree. So that's a good thing. The I think the hard stage we're at right now is then how do we translate that into a systemic 
engagement and result at every step. Yes. Right. Correct. And, and I think they're working on that. There's, you know, one of the, the projects right now at FDA is related to patient engagement, new guidance surrounding the collection and uh, submission and use of patient engagement data. But in the meantime, organizations like ours, we've gathered uh, two sets of patient engagement data and we're getting ready to to present it to the FDA, but we're not sure how that will be used. Right. And so it's this this interim period where I think we're all a little bit unsure and testing the waters. But I think that's helpful. All of that is helpful in in the FDA practically seeing circumstances where um, this might come into play. Yep. I agree. I think. I think that's exactly where we are, which is a, a great place. There's there's no certainly no reason to cry about, you know, the advancements we've made there. But it is still, I think, really um, important that we continue to move forward and push every at every level. Yes. Right. Yes. Down to our physicians. I mean, from from our physicians all the way up to government to, to recognize that. Okay, just asking us questions does not mean it's it's um, patient centered. You right. really need to have constant, uh, meaningful involvement. Right, and I think that's you're exactly right. It's every constituency and every phase, and that's where I feel like with with my skill sets, I have a certain responsibility, and I look. You know, one of the things I follow in my life is to whom much is given, much is required, and I have a responsibility to take that skill set and make change, positive change for the people in my life, for our community. And whether that's, you know, pushing back on a system that says, oh, no, we're going to put a medical policy in place uh, as an insurer that doesn't make any sense. Right. Even if it doesn't necessarily negatively impact my child, I have to push back on yes. that because it's going to negatively impact somebody's child. Right, because we're together. In right. This. We are absolutely. And we expect that for someone else to do that for us and exactly. our disease state. Right. And and the interesting thing is, is a lot of times when when I've done that, you know, people from other diseases come come around and support and people were supporting me on Twitter. I just had a recent uh, issue related to insurance and I had people from other rare yes. diseases retweeting it and supporting it because they know that if if it impacts one, it's going to impact other diseases, too. Yeah, it, it does. And we are so we're making it, you're making it a little bit easier for the next person. It doesn't have to be with hunters. I mean, it could mm -hmm. be it really could be anything. You're just creating that pathway, right? right? And the more we get down that path, the more obvious and clear that path is. Yes, yes. We're just kind of getting there, right? It's like a little path unknown at this point, but right. we're getting there. Rising tides lift all boats. Ah, that's I what love I that. Say. It's, um, and those are the things that I remind myself of and why we're doing what we're doing and why we all come together. Yeah. Because that's truly the case in rare disease. Rising tides lift all boats. That is, those are inspiring and really powerful words. Thank you. Do you have that written down anywhere? No, I th I, I'm, it wasn't from me. <laughs> I stole it from somebody else, but it's the truth. So tomorrow, as you are receiving the award. Have you thought about what you're going to say? Uh, and and really, um, more pointedly, do you have a message for other advocates and 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 words of wisdom for ad for them as they they start their advocacy journey? Something that 
I remind myself of all along this or have reminded myself of along this path has been keep learning, keep networking, own your expertise yes, because we have it and do it scared. Because I think a lot of times patient advocates, they, they learn and they're, they're doing all this. And then it's like, well, what do I do with that? Figuring out different things. And I always say, don't just do something. Do some thing. Do a thing. Do something in particular and do it scared if you have to. Yeah. You know, I don't wake up every day knowing what I'm doing. I've never run a nonprofit before. Right. You know, people think, oh, you're you're a lawyer. Or you're... I've never run a nonprofit. I've never been in drug development. I, before my son was diagnosed, had never known anything about how clinical trials were designed. Right. But those are now my areas of expertise. But I had to work to that and had to do it scared for a long time. Right. We don't learn it. I mean, we don't learn it overnight. But that knowledge, once we do and we keep learning, that knowledge cannot be taken away from us. It makes us, it really gives us our leverage to to prove that we belong in, in part of the process, right? So true. So true. You know, it wasn't that all of a sudden I became an expert in neurocognitive clinical trials. Right. I read a lot. Yeah. I read, I'm a voracious reader and I talked to lots of really smart people. But once I understood that I knew more than a lot of these companies, exactly, I'm going to say that now. I have an expertise in this area and it is more than a lot of the drug companies who are designing these trials. And I'm going to own that. Absolutely. That's, that's wonderful because it's it's... It's two things. It's really like motivation to move forward. And really, genuinely, that is how you empower yourself. Exactly. That's the best advice. So a few questions that this morning the keynote asked. We'll take a shot, see if you can answer them. Um, What are you most proud of? I am most proud of just waking up and appreciating every day. (laughs) Really? Would you stop giving such fabulous answers? <laughs> no, really. I, when you wake up and you look around and you go, I am content. I'm, I'm just proud of that. I yeah. want to be content with my life. And I think that's something that had I stayed a healthcare lawyer and, you know, was climbing the ladder right. and doing all of that. I don't know that I would be as content with my life, but I'm proud that uh, in my 40 something age, <laughs> I can say I am content. I always want to get better, but I'm content with my life. That's so beautiful. That's really just as inspiring as the keynote this morning. What are you hopeful for? I hope that there becomes a cure available for kids with Hunter syndrome. I hope for the first kid that we dose in our gene therapy trial, and I know I will probably sob like a baby. Yeah. I hope that when these kids are diagnosed, the doctor isn't saying your child is going to lose all of their abilities and then they're going to die, which is what I was told. I hope that they say, here are several options. for treating your child and potentially curing your child. And that parent goes, okay, this is a challenge that we're going to rise to, but he's going to, I'm not planning his funeral. That's the hard part is actually thinking every day, what are the songs I'm going to play at my child's funeral? And I don't want any parent to have to think that. No, 
Oh. What are you most afraid of? This is where the rubber meets the road, right? Yeah. I'll be honest. I'm most afraid my child's going to die. Yeah. You know, he he's, you know, he's on a drug and whether he can keep access to that drug, whether we develop gene therapy, yeah. I don't want to have to go to my child's funeral. And that's what drives me. But again, going back to that first question, I'm content with my life. I'm content to sit in that tension, in that tension of not knowing if he's going to live a full life. And I'm just going to enjoy what we have. But yeah, that's I'm most afraid of standing at my child's funeral. Those were so personal. And I really appreciate your honesty and your willingness to, to answer those. I think what I was so um, interesting to me about those questions is if we start to ask each other those things, ask ourselves those things, and really ask you know, our physicians and have them know our answers, I think that alone can really change the course of a conversation when we're talking about treating our children, right? I agree. And ourselves. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think looking at, at those fears, there's, you know, the daily fears, like I'm afraid he's, he's going to need carpal tunnel surgery sometime soon or, or things right. like that and things you can do something about. But those long-term fears, if you at least recognize and understand that that is your, your fear, you can at least face it. Yep. And, and instead of it like rumbling around in your subconscious all the time. Yeah, I think so. And then it gets back to that first. I mean, it's helped you facing it. It's helped you become more content. Yes. I'm really honored that with all of the time that you're required um, of many people this really spectacular weekend uh, that you would sit down with us and, and talk a little bit about your brilliance. It's obvious um, to me why you are our champion of hope this year. You've always inspired me over the years. So I will be clapping very loudly for you tomorrow night. And uh, as I will for the rest of the year, because this is, I mean, it's big times ahead for you and, and really for all of us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare and Common podcast. Tune in for more at rareandcommon.com. Listen to other episodes in the archives and sign up to find out when new episodes are released. Rare in Common podcast. Click, listen, feel, listen.